This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmeyer, and welcome to episode 39 of Keep the Faith, my weekly podcast in which we explore contemporary issues through the prism of Jewish law and tradition. And what could be more contemporary an issue than the impeachment and possible removal of a sitting president of the United States? Here's a pop quiz. Who was the first president to be impeached and removed from office? Think about that for a moment. We'll go back to it. Meanwhile, I'm sure you know the old adage, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Well, it's amazing what you can discover by Googling. It turns out that it really is an old adage, nearly 200 years old, in fact. Bear with me because there's a point to this digression. There's some confusion as to when the adage first appeared, but its most likely debut was in 1838 in a songbook written by a man named William Edward Hickson. Hickson believed in using musical education to teach children and others morality and ethics through the singing of what he called moral songs. One of the moral songs in Hickson's 1838 book was titled Perseverance or Try Again. Here's how it began, quote, "'Tis a lesson you should heed, try, try again. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again." Unquote. In other words, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again, is not only an old adage, but it was meant to teach people, children especially, about morality. And morality is at the heart of why impeachment is in the news. After all, with the second impeachment of Donald J. Trump, we're living through a case of, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. And so the topic for this week is the world's first impeachment and its relevance today. Now that I think about it, it may have been more appropriate for me to have quoted what Yogi Berra said after Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris hit back-to-back home runs in 1961. Quote, it's deja vu all over again, unquote. After all, the House of Representatives, at least in its own opinion, just hit back-to-back home runs of its own, two impeachments in two years. If you never heard of Yogi Berra, by the way, or are unfamiliar with yogiisms, Google it. Although, be forewarned, not all yogiisms are authentic. As he himself once put it, quote, I didn't really say everything I said, unquote. I couldn't have said it better. Back to the pop quiz I threw out to you before going into digressions into adages and yogiisms. Who was the first president to be impeached and removed from office? No, it wasn't Andrew Johnson or William Jefferson Clinton. Both men were impeached by the House of Representatives, true, but they were acquitted in their Senate trials, and so they kept their jobs. And it isn't Donald J. Trump. The Senate didn't convict him the first time around, last February 5th, and by the time his second Senate trial begins this year, Trump will already be out of office. You can't remove a person from an office he no longer holds. So, the first president to be impeached and removed from office wasn't Johnson, or Clinton, or Trump. 
It was a renowned rabbinic sage of the late 1st and early 2nd centuries of the Common Era, or CE for short. His name was Rabban Gamaliel II. The Second Temple was destroyed by the Romans in the year 70 CE. For many years following that outrage, Rabban Gamaliel II was the Nasi, or President, of the Sanhedrin which had become the governing body for the Jews living under Roman rule in those days. Gamliel's high crime and misdemeanor has an all-too-familiar ring to it for us today, abuse of power. And therein lies a tale few people know happened, and even fewer understand what happened, much less what its import has been in history. Before his impeachment and removal back then, and even long after into the 21st century, the removal of a national leader was often accomplished through violence, often including killing that ruler. That certainly was the case in the world of the Mishnah, meaning in the first two centuries of the Common Era, which is the world of Gamliel II, and even going back hundreds of years before that, if not thousands. The most famous example, of course, before the Common Era, or BCE for short, was when Julius Caesar was assassinated by a group of Roman senators in the year 44 BCE. Gaius Caligula was assassinated in the year 41 CE. His successor was Claudius, and Claudius was removed the same way 13 years later, probably by his wife, no less, who wanted her son Nero to rule. Nero, for his part, eventually committed suicide rather than allow himself to be killed by others. And then there was the Emperor Domitian. He was killed in 96 CE. That was the way of the world in ancient times. It continues to be the way things are done in some parts of the world today. Six world leaders were assassinated in the first 11 years of the century. There was the President of the Democratic Republic of the Congo and the King of Nepal, both of whom were assassinated in 2001. The Prime Minister of Serbia was assassinated in 2003. Pakistan's Prime Minister in 2007. The President of Guinea-Bissau in 2009. And the late and unlamented Libyan strongman Muammar Gaddafi was assassinated in 2011. Modern Israel in 1995 saw the assassination of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. May his memory forever be for a blessing. Ancient Israel, sad to say, also was not immune to this method of replacing heads of state. There were at least three kings of the kingdom of Judah and seven kings of the breakaway kingdom of Israel who were assassinated. And at least twice, David was urged by his aides to assassinate Israel's king at the time, and his predecessor, King Saul. David, to his credit, refused both times, even though King Saul was out to kill him. Here are a couple of other examples. In the book of Two Kings, for example, chapter 12 reports that, quote, Yehoash, king of Judah, took all the things that had been consecrated by his fathers and by himself, and all the gold that there was in the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and in the royal palace, and he sent them as a bribe to King Hazael of Aram, unquote. This clearly didn't sit well with some of the court elite who, quote, formed a conspiracy against Yehoash and assassinated him, unquote. 
A similar fate awaited the 24-year-old King Ammon of Judah in chapter 21 of Two Kings. He too was killed by the people around him. Not just kings suffered such fates. The prophet Jeremiah tells us how after the first temple was destroyed, the Babylonian-appointed governor of Judah, Gedaliahu ben Ahikam by name, was assassinated by a man named Yishmael and his ten co-conspirators because they considered Gedaliahu to be a traitor. That assassination, by the way, had such seriously unhappy ramifications for the Jewish people that we commemorated to this day in the fast of Gedaliah, Som Gedaliah, a fast day named in honor of the victim, which we observe annually on the day after Rosh Hashanah. Enter the sages of the Mishnah. Some of them at least weren't against seeing those that they considered enemies to be killed. The Babylonian Talmud tractate Brachot, for example, records how a rabbi named Shela conspired to have an informer killed. Killing an informer, however, someone who seeks to harm the community in a serious way, is simply not the same thing as removing a king or a president by murdering them. Clearly, our sages of blessed memory did not believe in assassinating office holders, despite the world in which they lived. Judging from Gamliel II's case, only a political solution was acceptable to them. So, who was Gamliel II? He was the great-great-grandson of the famous sage Hillel. He ruled the land of Israel's official governing body from approximately 80 CE until at least the end of the first decade of the next century. He also may have been the first leader to actually bear the title of Nasi, of president, but that's open to debate. By all accounts, in his private life, Gamliel II was a kind, gentle, and even compassionate man. But the mantle of leadership he inherited from his father and grandfather and great-grandfather weighed heaviest on his shoulders. See, Judaism at the time was on the brink of extinction. The religion of Israel, which binds the Jewish people together, the religion of Israel was temple-based and priest-led. But the temple was no more, and the priesthood was powerless because of it. Gamliel understood only too well, as did his immediate predecessor, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, that unless he and his colleagues could quickly transform the religion of Israel into what we now call rabbinic Judaism, and at the same time win the hearts and minds of the people by doing so, the Jewish people would cease to be. That's not an exaggeration, by the way. As such, Gamaliel II jealously guarded his power and dealt heavy-handedly with those who disagreed with him. As an example, he apparently barred hundreds of qualified scholars from the Bet HaMidrash, the study house in which matters of Jewish law were debated and decided. Apparently, one of his biggest adversaries was a rabbi named Yehoshua ben Hananiah, although it seems he was never barred from Judaism's governing forum. The Mishnah and the Talmud tractate titled Rosh Hashanah, for example, reports on two instances in which Gamliel II was challenged by other sages because he accepted the word of two witnesses whose testimony contained doubtful facts. In both cases, the matter related to the sighting of the new moon. 
in those days, that sighting determined when the next Jewish month was to begin, which of course also decided when festivals and other observances would begin. There were no Jewish calendars in those days. In both cases, despite the challenges by the other sages, Gamliel's decision stood. He was the president, after all, and he insisted that his word was law. It's the second case that's relevant here. Gamliel, in that case, set the time for the start of Rosh Hashanah based on the specious evidence given in that case by two witnesses. This upset the sage Rabbi Dosa ben Horkinas, who said the men were false witnesses in his words. His reasoning convinced Yehoshua ben Hananiah, who then took it upon himself to declare that Rosh Hashanah would begin one day later than the day Gamliel had set. Obviously, Rabban Gamliel did not take that very kindly, reports the Mishnah, quote, Rabban Gamliel sent a message to him, saying, I order you to appear before me with your staff and with your money purse on the day on which you say Yom Kippur occurs, unquote, meaning on the day Gamliel had decided was the day after Yom Kippur. In other words, Gamliel was ordering Yehoshua ben Hanania to do things that are not permissible on Yom Kippur, even though he knew that to Yehoshua ben Hanania that day was Yom Kippur. The rabbi complied with the order, but only after two of his colleagues convinced him to do so. Those colleagues, and many other sages meanwhile, adopted a wait-and-see attitude towards Gamliel II, and they didn't have too long to wait. Another instance is detailed in another Talmud tractate, Bechorot by name, in that case, Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hananiah was publicly humiliated by Gamliel before the entire assembly of scholars. He was publicly humiliated yet again when he challenged Gamliel's ruling regarding whether a particularly important prayer, the Amidah no less, was optional or required at night. Yehoshua ben Hananiah said it was optional. The Talmud tractate Brachot explains what happened next. Gamliel, it reports, publicly and brutally humiliated Yehoshua. This was the final straw for the other sages. Quote, they said, How long will he continue to afflict Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hanania as he did last year on Rosh Hashanah? Unquote. They then detailed several of the previous incidents. In essence, they drew up articles of impeachment and concluded that Gamliel II was guilty of abuse of power. Said the sages, quote, Come, let us remove him as president, unquote. The issue was debated and a vote was taken. Gamliel II was found guilty and removed from office. In his place, the rabbis elected a rabbi named Eliezer ben Azariah. The Talmud insists, by the way, that Eliezer was only 18 years old at that time prompting him to declare that he'd just been given the responsibilities of a much older man. In a statement after his election, he said, quote, Behold, I am like one who is 70 years old, unquote. That statement, by the way, appears in the Passover Haggadah, albeit it's so out of context there that almost no one at the Seder table knows what the historic circumstances were behind that statement. In any case, and this is where we get to the relevance of this in our day, Rabban Gamliel II eventually came to realize the error of his ways, and he publicly apologized to Rabbi Yehoshua ben Hananiah. 
Rabbi Yehoshua was dubious at first, but he finally accepted the apology. And then he magnanimously fought for Gamliel to be restored to his post as president. At this point, the story becomes a bit murky. The Babylonian Talmud suggests, but does not actually say, that Rabban Gamliel and Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah shared the presidency from that point on, whereas the Jerusalem Talmud states outright that Gamliel held the post exclusively and that Eliezer became the vice president. His actual title was Av Bet Din, meaning father of the court. In any case, around 1900 years ago, a president was impeached and removed from office because of abuse of power, but then he was re-elected to his post once he was sufficiently contrite and acted upon his contrition. In other words, he was restored to power only after he did teshuvah, only after he publicly and sincerely repented. Clearly, there's a lesson in that outcome for Donald Trump and for Congress. There's also a lesson here for the rest of us as well. Teshuvah, repentance, works. So far, Trump refuses to even acknowledge any responsibility for the horrendous events of January 6th, and his body language in the video messages he's been releasing, calling on his followers to keep the peace in the days and weeks ahead, suggests that he was only saying such things because he was pressured to do so, not because he really wanted to do so. Presumably, based on Trump's own words and on what people around him are saying, he intends to seek the presidency again in 2004. But unless he does what Rabban Gamliel II did, meaning unless he does serious tshuva, unless he's seriously contrite and asks forgiveness from all of us because what happened on January 6th harmed all of us, it's a virtual certainty that many of the Republicans who enabled him these last four years will do everything in their power to see that he never gets another chance. In the Senate, that might even mean getting enough Republicans to join the Democrats in convicting him this time and barring him from ever holding any elective office. And that includes dog catcher. This is Rabbi Shammai Engelmayer. I hope you come back for my next podcast, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about this or my other podcasts. Go to www.shamai.org, 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 and email me, please. Pray for our country and its soon-to-be new leaders. Pray as well that the violence we saw on January 6th doesn't reoccur in the next days and weeks. We don't need all hell to break loose. We need healing to begin. Shabbat Shalom. Stay healthy and stay safe.